Hi there, we're going to listen to Boaz Mysteries' new, um, post. Continue watching. What's up? Boaz Mysteries. They don't want you to hear this, because this is, uh, says, talks about how the how God ordered the flood. Wow. Interesting. Karma Kingdom of Kush, a lost ancient Egyptian African civilization. Wow. Look, it's got the... Wow. After 350 CE, Kush was in full decline, and the following era would be marked by the spread of new. <laughs> I just tweeted. Just like the picture of that. Be uh, be. Just like the Egyptian Nile Valley to the north, Nubia is yet another stretch like of land that were, has always no. been blessed with fertility and natural wealth, thanks to the Nile River. As such, Nubia is a geographical region that has been settled for thousands upon thousands of years, just like its northern neighbor, Egypt. Perhaps it is that proximity to the illustrious civilization of ancient Egypt that has left Nubia somewhat overlooked by people other than those who study the topic. Indeed, Nubia has been home to numerous ancient states, empires, and cultures, some of which were among the oldest in Africa. In fact, the people who hailed from Nubia would even conquer Egypt itself at one point and rule over it for a while. This feat was accomplished by the Kingdom of Kush, which was perhaps the most famous and successful Nubian state that existed for more than a thousand years. As you may or may not know, ancient Egypt itself consisted of Upper and Lower Egypt, named as that according to where they were positioned along the Nile. Seeing as the Nile flows northward into the Mediterranean, Lower Egypt was the northernmost part, with Upper Egypt located just south of it. Kush, on the other hand, was just south of Upper Egypt. Needless to say, the people who occupied Nubia and Egypt had many contacts, and they interacted in many ways. As can be expected, this often led to hostilities, but it also led to cultural exchange. And it can be said that both Kush and Egypt impacted and shaped each other in certain ways. Just like Egypt, Nubia itself is often separated into the lower and upper hands. The southernmost area, which was Upper Nubia, was essentially the heart of what would become the Kingdom of Kush. Another set of important geographical marks in this area are Nile's so-called cataracts, which are a series of six rapids along the river. These rapids have also served as natural boundaries between different Nubian regions throughout history. The first and northernmost cataract is located at Aswan, Egypt, and this is essentially where Nubia begins. Nubia's southern edge is roughly around the Sudanese capital of Khartoum, which is where the sixth cataract is located. There are multiple theories as to the origin of this region's name, but the most popular is that it's derived from the ancient Egyptian word Another suggestion is that it might have come from the early settler tribes called Noba or Nubis. 
At any rate, despite rough cutting that tended to engage in the portions of the river, the Nile was generous to the peoples of Nubia, just like it was to folks elsewhere in its valley. Cultures emerged, tribes interacted, and widened out, with the kingdom of Kush representing the ancient apex of that life. Needless to say, the history of Nubia is somewhat murky, even during the more renowned Kush era, let alone prior to that time. Historians generally designate the kingdom of Kush as existing and flourishing roughly between 1069 BCE and 350 CE, although some scholars place the turning point later at around 785 BCE. Either way, there were people around in Nubia long before Kush became a kingdom. Early Settlement Nubia was most likely inhabited as early as 8,000 What a stupid thing to say. By people who settled down and started to adopt a more sedentary lifestyle. Of course, people likely passed through the area throughout Nubia long before that in search of food, but those were largely hunter-gatherers who never stayed in one place for too long. As folks started to realize the benefits of settling down and concentrating in certain areas along the Nile, semblances of society began to emerge. This process is a common theme of human history in fertile regions suitable for habitation, such as the Nile or Mesopotamia. The emergence of early cultures and societies to the north in Egypt occurred the same way, and the peoples of these two regions would start interacting early on, with significant contact being established as early as the 4th millennium BCE. The culture in ancient Nubia would draw influence from Egypt, but it's it like was five, still largely by other and years. The early people in Nubia were called Ta-Seti by the which meant land of the bull. Of course, this name stemmed from the fact that these folks were proficient archers above all else. Nowadays, this Neolithic culture, which we know little about, is referred to as the A-group culture, particularly in the area south of the Third Cataract, which consists of fertile farmland suitable for settlement. Further south, in Upper Nubia, the ancient people are often referred to as pre-Kerma culture, owing to one of the most prominent pre-Kush cultures that would emerge. How much these cultures interacted and influenced each other is unclear. We also don't know exactly where these people came from, but the most likely answer is that these were tribes that hunted and gathered food elsewhere in Sudan and also in the Sahara. We have some indications as to how they might have lived around the 5th millennium BCE thanks to the remains of their rock art that has been found. Some of these ancient illustrations seem to show us a cattle cult. Cattle cults usually revolved around the practice of burying animals in structures, and such rituals have been present throughout Sahara, East Africa, and the Nile Valley for thousands of years. In fact, these cults persist to this day in some remote areas of Africa. At any rate, this would illustrate the pastoral nature of these early settlers, and it shows the gradual shift from hunter-gatherer tribes to a sedentary lifestyle. The culture of the so-called A-group emerged around 3800 to 3500 years BCE, which was also an interesting time in neighboring Egypt, where a culture was starting to take shape as well. 
The early dynastic period in Egypt began around 3150 BCE, and it is believed that there was already contact between the Egyptians and the people living in the Kush region at that time. The polities that emerged around Upper Egypt were most likely similar to the culture in Nubia, not just culturally, but also ethnically. Although we certainly don't know very much about these cultures or their interactions, there are some indications that the interaction was significant. In fact, it's possible that there might have been early attempts to form a unified kingdom somewhere between Upper Egypt and Lower Nubia. The most prominent of the pre-dynastic cultures in Upper Egypt was that of Nakata, which existed somewhere between 4400 and 3000 BCE. These folks made their attempts at conquest and unification of the Nile Valley, and Nubia, or Tassadi, was part of that course. According to evidence collected mostly at Kustul, an important A-group archaeological site in southern Egypt, the unified kingdom was in effect around 3300 BCE. As such, by the time when Egypt was unified and the early dynastic period of Egyptian history began, Nubia was largely a part of that state. Whether through assimilation, conflict, or both, the A-group culture slowly faded away as the first Egyptian dynasty took shape. Nonetheless, we know for certain that developed societies emerged in Nubia before Egypt united under its first dynasty. As such, it stands to reason that the Nubians influenced Egyptians as well, although the influence was probably stronger in the opposite direction. Either way, these two neighboring cultures would be significantly intertwined from the very start of ancient Egyptian statehood. In fact, a lot of what we know about the subsequent kingdom of Kush and its culture and history comes from Egyptian sources. Since the two realms were periodically at odds, the Egyptian records about the Kushites are often approached with a degree of carefulness by scholars, but their value in Nubian research has still been immense. The A-group culture faded away by the 28th century BCE, and it's believed that their area remained depopulated for quite a while. Some scholars have suggested the existence of the B-group culture after that time, but this has been disputed. It's likely that after a certain period, descendants of the initial culture returned to these lands somewhere between 2800 and 2300 BCE. One of the reasons for the early onset of problems between the Egyptians and the Nubians was that the area was used by Egypt as a trading corridor as early as 3100 BCE. Important materials like ivory and ebony were likely transported through Nubia from the heart of Africa to Egypt. These economic interests probably sparked security concerns and led to conflict with the local Nubians. Kermas culture. The earliest time when a permaculture is thought to have taken shape was around 2500 years BCE, when it was already interacting with ancient Egypt. The permaculture derives its name from the ancient city of Kerma, also known as Dukigel, which was located in present-day North Sudan. This place was most likely settled some 5500 years ago, and it later served as the capital of the permaculture which is why Kerma is also sometimes referred to as a kingdom. The city was consolidated and established as an important center by around 2400 BCE. 
Nubia began to be discussed in Egyptian records around 2300 BCE during Egypt's Old Kingdom, particularly in accounts made by trading expeditions. Already by that time, Perma was a powerful center and it was a threat to Egyptian interests in the area. We know this from Egyptian writings, but also from the fact that they built fortifications that were supposed to help in preventing any incursions from Perma's direction. As always, however, geopolitics and foreign relations were much more complex than that. Despite certain conflicts, Perma and Egypt had a trading relationship, with Perma being an important source of things like gold, incense, ebony, ivory, and certain animals. As such, Perma provided Egypt with many of the luxuries that Egyptian rulers and nobility were known to enjoy. The heart of the city was the local Sefufa, meaning palace, which was an important religious structure made out of mud, brick, and erected to a height of nearly 60 feet. The central Sefufa in Kona is just one of numerous such structures in Kurt. And these buildings remain somewhat mysterious to this day. Namely, the passageways through their interiors made use of stones that led to a flat roof on top, which included a ceremonial altar. We don't really know what kind of rituals took place in these Sefufa structures, but their religious nature is fairly apparent. Judging by present-day remains of the city, Perma had three main Sefufa structures, the largest of which was the Western Sefufa. When the city of Perma was consolidated hey. around 2400 BCE, hey. culture began to enter an era of development flourishing between 2400 and 1500 BCE. This was despite occasional setbacks, such as when King Netahotep II's Middle Kingdom of Egypt invaded and conquered a great territory. The conquest did little to hinder the prosperity of the city of Perma, and it continued to thrive and grow in power. However, the conquest did mark the beginning of an era of increased Egyptian influence on the Kerma culture. This wasn't necessarily a negative thing, as the Kerma Kushites were often made stronger by what they adopted and learned from the Egyptians. Between 1782 and 1570 BCE, which is a time known as the Second Intermediate Period of Egypt, Kerma was a significant threat. This threat was exacerbated by the fact that Egypt had to deal with the Hiskos people, who were encroaching on from the north in the Nile Delta. Again, despite being an occasional threat, even the Hiskos traded with Egypt, particularly at the Egyptian city of Thebes. The risk soon outweighed the reward, however, and the Egyptians forced the Hiskos out of their territories under the rule of Ahmos I in the 16th century BCE. Akhmos I then proceeded south and fought the Kushites. He inflicted defeats on the Kushites, but these only marked the beginning of Egyptian campaigns against Kush. These campaigns continued under the reigns of subsequent rulers, going into the rule of Tutmosul III between 1458 and 1425 BCE. The general consensus is that the Kerma culture ended before that, though, around 1500 BCE. This is because of the attack that the I mounted against the city of Kerma during that time. An important moment in the emergence of the kingdom of Kush came when Tutmosul III founded the city of Napata. 
Throughout the period of the New Kingdom of Egypt, between 1550 and 1069 BCE, Napata was the southernmost Egyptian settlement. Moses III founded the city as a means of consolidating Egypt's hold over the newly conquered regions in Nubia. This is how Kush technically became an Egyptian colony after the 16th century BCE. As such, it was governed by a viceroy, appointed by and directly subordinate to the Egyptian pharaoh. The entirety of Nubia was divided into two main regions for easier administration, including the northern Wawat, that was based in the capital at Aswan, and Kush, to the south, with its capital, of course, at Napata. These two main provinces each had their Egyptian deputies of sorts, who, in turn, managed a number of other officials who were subordinate to them. It was a sophisticated colonial administration, so to speak, in which Egyptians were favored for high positions. Over time, the locals of Nubian descent, who were loyal and heavily influenced by Egyptians, would also be appointed to higher positions. Of course, this robust bureaucracy was based in important administrative centers, where their influence was the strongest. Deeper, out in the country, however, the Nubians were still preserving their cultural identity, absorbing only limited Egyptian influence. Over time, this would give rise to the actualized Kushite culture, a blend of influences from Egypt and the African people to its south. Needless to say, Nefara itself was under heavy Egyptian influence since its founding. This is evident, for instance, by the remnants of pyramids in the area, which rulers were buried under. Tombs were enriched with Egyptian goods and valuables, according to Egyptian customs. On top of being the political seat of Kush, it was also a religious center and a trading hub for the region. Through Egypt, goods could be exchanged with distant parts around the Red Sea, but also to the south and west. This position made Napata and Kush as a whole a wealthy and prosperous place. Apart from trade with distant lands, the Kushites also relied on their extensive and very successful cultivation of all sorts of food sources along the Nile. What's more, Kush relied on Nubia's plentiful gold deposits, as we mentioned earlier. Kush thus continued the tradition of supplying Egypt with all sorts of luxuries, such as jewelry. Not long after establishing the city, Tutmosid III also constructed the Temple of Amun close to Jebel Barkal, the nearby mountain. This temple was of major importance and it would remain as such for the remainder of Kush's history, especially during the era of Napata. Subsequent Egyptian rulers didn't neglect it either, providing additions and improvements for a long time to come. The Temple of Amun's priesthood also grew very powerful later on, gaining influence over local Kushite rulers, just as they did with Egyptian rulers. Ramses II, 1279-1213 BCE, was a particularly prominent contributor, and he also built several other temples throughout Nubia. Kush would continue to be an important source of all kinds of resources for Egypt for a long time to come, and they would also contribute manpower and get involved in Egypt's conflict. However, the New Kingdom of Egypt began to decline toward 1069 BCE, which heralded an era of change in Kush, at least politically. 
This is also the year that some scholars point to as the actual beginning of the Kingdom of Kush, at least in the form of the Napata city-state. Others put that date later in the 8th century BCE. Either way, the decline of the new kingdom in 1069 BCE emboldened the local rulers in Kush to become more and more autonomous. They could afford to strive toward independence thanks to the turmoil in the Egyptian heartland, but also because the Kushite rulers wielded significant military forces in Nubia by this point. These forces were loyal to their local rulers above all else. Egyptian control over the region waned and Kush became effectively independent. Napata was the capital of the independent Kushite kingdom, of course, and the realm was now free to craft its own policies. For instance, trade relations between Kush and Egypt persisted, but the Kushites were now free to trade with other places as they saw fit. The old city of Kerma also still played a part, particularly in the spiritual and religious sense, which is evident by the fact that the Kushites continued to bury their rulers there. This was the case only initially, though, and the Kushites soon built a necropolis at Mapada specifically for the burial of royalty. While Kush was technically independent, it's important to note that its ruling elites were still composed of Egyptianized nobility sources. A hereditary system completely independent from Egypt took shape, wherein all political and familial ties to Egypt were severed, but the cultural ties were still there. By 800 BCE, this system was firmly established, and Egyptianized chieftains of Nubian descent were inheriting rule over Kush in successive order. As the Third Intermediate Period, 1059 to 664 BCE, went on its way in Egypt, the once glorious and illustrious Egyptian state was declining in wealth and influence. Meanwhile, Kush was growing and developing in all ways that matter, further consolidating itself as a state and an important influential center in the region. The first Kushite king that we know of for sure, named Alara, was in power by around 795 BCE. Alara's reign was marked by unification and consolidation of territories into a centralized and more defined Kushite state. Alara also took steps to make Kushite religious practices comprehensive and consolidated at Napata, which was, of course, a very important aspect of state building. These feats would earn him legendary status later on as he was, in a way, the father of the country. The fact that he reigned for quite a long time, most likely over 40 years, also contributed to his glorification. Alara's rule was also the beginning of the Napatan dynasty. These were direct ancestors of the Kushite rulers that would later rule over the entirety of Egypt as Egypt's 25th dynasty. Alara was succeeded by Kashta, another very important ruler in the early history of Kush. While he was undoubtedly an independent ruler of Kush, he did willingly increase Egyptian influence in Napata and Kush. This was because Kashta had a personal admiration for all things Egyptian, especially their sophisticated culture and art. He is thus credited with making Napata and Kush more Egyptianized than it already was. Egypt declined even further during this time, and Upper Egypt, Kush's neighboring region, 
seemed to be getting more and more distant from the Egyptian rulers in the north. The diminished Egyptian control over Upper Egypt provided a window of opportunity that Kashta noticed and intended to take full advantage of. Namely, he cleverly used his connections and influence to get his daughter, Amenirdis I, appointed as God's wife of Amun in Thebes, the administrative center of Upper Egypt. Kashta accomplished this by getting Takalat III's half-sister, who was the then God's wife of Amun, to adopt Amenirdis I, thus God making her a successor. This was most likely possible thanks to the strong relations between the priests of Amun in Napata and Thebes. God's wife of Amun was a very important position that could exert a lot of influence and wield copious amounts of wealth. This infiltration, so to speak, ensured that Thebes was under de facto Napatan control, which set the stage for the complete takeover that would eventually occur under Kashta's successor. Once Amenirdis I was in the position of God's wife of Amun, she took over Thebes and then laid claim to the entirety of Upper Egypt. Not only was Lower Egypt's influence in Upper Egypt weak, but the northern elites were embroiled in a struggle against each other and were hardly controlling their own half of the country, let alone the southern territories. Thanks to these circumstances, Kashta simply walked into Thebes and proclaimed that he was the king of both Upper and Lower Egypt. And so, Kashta seized these major gains without even going to war, which was probably a welcome turn of events considering his warm relationship with the Egyptian culture. This marked the founding of the 25th dynasty of Egypt, which would rule the entire Egyptian land along the Nile between around 744 and 656 BCE. As you can see, the relations between the Kushite Nubians and ancient Egypt were extensive, complex, and variable in nature. Short of saying that Egypt spawned Kush, it's apparent that Egypt played a very important part in its early formation. Scholars are somewhat divided as to how strong and defined the continuity between the old Kermaculture and the independent Kushite state was, at least in the cultural sense. This uncertainty is, however, primarily due to the cultural influence that Egypt exerted in Nubia. When it comes to genetics and even appearance, the ancient Nubians were certainly different than Egyptians, at least in general. Genetic research on Egyptian mummies has shown that the ancient Egyptians were the closest to the people of the Near East, which is a European term denoting Anatolia, large chunks of the Middle East, and East Thrace. Nubians, on the other hand, were closer to what one might consider black African nowadays. However, contemporary racial notions of black and white are certainly all but inapplicable to ancient Egypt and Nubia. Of course, there is also the matter of Nubian rule over the entirety of Egypt. How much southern African influence this brought to northern parts of ancient Egypt is debatable, but the era of the 25th dynasty is undoubtedly a time when a Nubian state conquered Egypt and elevated itself to the status of an empire. After these monumental achievements, Kashta soon passed away and his place was taken by his son, Pai, around 752-747, and his reign lasted until 721 BCE. 
It's unknown how exactly the princes of Lower Egypt reacted to Kashta's proclamation and his extensive gains once he took over Upper Egypt. The reactions would become much more pronounced once Pi started attempting to pick up where his father left off and finish the job of consolidating Kushite rule over the entirety of Egypt. To Pi, also known as Paionkai, the princes or any other nobles who refused to bend the knee were essentially rebels against his legitimate rule, and he treated them as such. Without trying to negotiate any sort of terms, Pi eventually took his army to the northward and captured the major cities of Lower Egypt before returning home to Napata. It would seem that Pai's idea of conquest was really to do a simple but effective show of force, though. Instead of slaughtering all his rivals and allocating military garrisons to defend his gains, Pai allowed the local rulers whom he defeated to stay on their positions as long as they pledged their allegiance to him as the new supreme ruler. Overall, it appears that ruling the conquered Egyptian lands didn't particularly interest Pai. It's unclear when exactly the main portion of Pai's campaign into Egypt occurred, but it was most likely in the 720s. Pai would be remembered as the first Nubian pharaoh of the 25th dynasty of Egypt. With these conquests, Kush essentially became an empire, quite possibly one of the most powerful ones in the world at that time, along with Assyria. Kush now controlled the entirety of the Nile along with its delta. This gave the Kushites access to all the riches that once made Egypt great, including fertile lands and other natural resources. History's plans for Imperial Kush were short-lived, though, as this height of power would last only around a hundred years. Pai was succeeded by his brother, Shabaka, who ruled between 721 and 707 BCE. Not long after assuming the throne, Shabaka went on to consolidate his brother's gains and finalize the conquest of the remaining Egyptian territories. Just like Pai, Shabaka mostly ruled from Napata, so it continued to be the capital. Soon after he came into power, Shabaka had to deal with rebelling nobles in Lower Egypt, but he crushed them. These decisive victories helped solidify Kushite gains, and the entire Lower Egypt up to the Nile Delta was firmly in the kingdom's grasp. There has been some debate among historians as to what the situation was really like for the Egyptians during these early years of Nubian conquest and rule. For a while, the prevailing belief was that Egyptians suffered and that their traditional values were jeopardized and harmed by the Nubians, but such claims have since been contested. As you know, Kushite culture had already been Egyptianized for quite a while, first under Egyptian colonial rule, and then also under independent Kushite rulers who undertook further Egyptianization. As such, the culture shock that Egyptians in the north experienced under Nubian rule was probably not that dramatic. Furthermore, just like Kashta before him, Shabaka, too, had a great admiration and respect for Egyptian culture, which included religious practice. He thus stuck with many of the Egyptian policies, rights, and other aspects of society and governance. Shabaka also made his son, Paramaket, the high priest of Amun, at Thebes. Of course, this was an incredibly powerful and important position, but above all, Having his son on such a post made Shabaka even more powerful than a pharaoh would usually be.
After this, Shabaka initiated multiple building projects and reconstructions, not only preserving Egyptian culture, but actually adding to it. Shabaka also re-established a system of theocratic monarchy in Egypt after he became the first priest of Amman. He was heavily invested in Egyptian religion, and he even created the Shabaka stone, on which he inscribed a religious papyrus. This invaluable piece of Egyptian and Kushite theology is well preserved to this day. Apart from dealing with the matters of state, Shabaka's reign also saw an uptick of hostilities between Egypt and Assyria. In the hopes of destabilizing and weakening the Assyrian rivals, Shabaka provided support to rebel groups in the Philistine city of Ashdod. Sargon II of Assyria crushed this uprising, though, and Shabaka's efforts were defeated. Traditionally, Shabaka is thought to have been succeeded by Shabitu, although some more recent evidence suggests that it might have been the other way around. This is still debated, but before this latest evidence, it was generally accepted that Shabitu ruled between 707 and 690 BCE. It would appear that Shabitu was Shabaka's younger brother, or possibly a nephew. The conflict with the Assyrians intensified during this time, with Kush providing support and sanctuary to Hebrew leaders in the rebelling states in Palestine, such as Judah and Israel. Such states would not yield to Assyrian control, and as such, they provided Egypt with a valuable buffer zone toward the ever more powerful Assyrians. After Sargon II's Assyrian throne was taken over by Sennacherib, the Assyrian armies entered Palestine and inflicted some defeats on the Egypto-Kushite forces there, notably at El Teke, around 701 BCE. The Assyrians further tried to capture Jerusalem as well, which was prevented thanks to reinforcements that came in under the command of Prince Tahaka. Some records also suggest that the Assyrian forces were beset by an outbreak of disease, which contributed greatly to their failure. After these engagements, there ensued a short era of peace between Egypt and the Assyrians. Taharqa, who was actually Tai's son, also eventually became the fourth Nubian pharaoh in Egypt, ruling between 690 and 671 BCE. Taharqa appears to have been a distinguished ruler, with many accomplishments during his rule, that was based in Memphis. Throughout the valley of the Nile River, Taharqa initiated construction and reconstruction projects, such as in the areas around Jebel Barkal, Kawa, and Karnak. These construction projects included all sorts of works, and many of them were religious in nature, entailing things like pyramids and temples. The construction of pyramids had significantly waned since the times of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt between 2055 and 1650 BCE. Under the 25th dynasty and Taharqa, however, pyramid building became widespread once again. Many of these pyramids stand throughout Sudan to this day. Through these and other projects, Taharqa revitalized Egypt's prosperity, culture, religion, arts, and architecture. Even though it didn't last particularly long, this was undoubtedly a time of great resurgence for Egypt, and the Nubians had proven themselves capable and competent monarchs up to that point. The Kushites even began to develop their own script during this time, which is now referred to as the Meroitic alphabet.
things would take a turn for the worse in 674, however, as the short and fragile peace with the Assyrians was coming to an end with the ascension of King Esarhaddon to the throne. He began aggressive military operations in Palestine in an effort to crush the remaining resistance there, and the Assyrians would soon mount an invasion into Egypt itself that same year. This initial invasion was a failure, however, and Taharqa was successful against the Assyrians for a short while. They struck again in 671 and were much more successful than before. After defeating Taharqa, Esarhaddon imprisoned his family and numerous other important members of the nobility, and he sent them all back to the Assyrian city of Nineveh as slaves. Taharqa managed to evade and escape capture, being Tunapana. Taharqa would actually recapture parts of Egypt from time to time, but he wasn't able to hold on to any of these gains for long. After Taharqa was forced out to Napata, the Assyrians began installing their puppet rulers in Lower Egypt. The problem for them was that they could only afford to station troops in the north of Egypt, leaving the southern region of Upper Egypt still vulnerable, which is how Taharqa was able to recapture portions of the country in 669 BCE. These renewed Nubian conquests went as far north as Memphis, which prompted Esarhaddon to decide to return and crush the Nubians once and for all. He died of a sudden illness before he ever got around to that, though. Esarhaddon's successor, Ashurbanipal, didn't forget about this, though, and he sought to get the job done. He sent an elite contingent of troops southward, and his force inflicted crushing defeats on Taharqa, who eventually died two years later back in Nubia. He was succeeded by Tantamani, who ruled from around 664 to 653 BCE as the last ruler of the Nubian 25th dynasty of Egypt. Tantamani continued his predecessor's attempt to recapture Egypt from the Assyrians. Tantamani commanded a rather large army, and he would come to blows with the Syrians and their local native vassals in Egypt on numerous occasions. One such encounter pitted Tantamani against Necho I, a vassal ruler in the Nile Delta. Tantamani met his match sometime later around Memphis when he was attacked by a joint force commanded by Ashurbanipal and Necho I's son, Sontik I. After this defeat, Tantamani made an unsuccessful stand at Thebes, but was eventually forced back to Napata. The Assyrians almost razed Thebes to the ground shortly thereafter. Tantik was then installed as the ruler and Assyrian vassal in Lower Egypt, but he slowly started pushing into Upper Egypt as well, gradually recapturing territories and unifying the country again. The string of defeats that Tantamani suffered during that time was enough to mostly pacify Kush. Santik I eventually gained significant independence from the Assyrians as well, and he thus established the 26th dynasty, which was the last native dynasty that would rule Egypt. The aforementioned events marked the end of the 26th dynasty of Egypt in 656 BCE, and the Numians would never reclaim the land again. The successors of the dynasty had to cut their losses, and they consolidated their position back at Napata. The time that followed is sometimes referred to as the Napata Kingdom, or the Napatan Period.
Between the 650s and 590 BCE, Napata was, again, the very heart of Kush, and luckily, the place had plenty of gold. Despite recent advance and hostility, Egypt was still more than happy to trade with Napata, so the Kushites were still able to make plenty of money. The city was also distinctly Kushite at this point, using their own style of script, architecture, painting, and other aspects of culture. Meanwhile, Samtek I was eventually succeeded by Neko II in Egypt, and history has recorded their reigns in Egypt as good and prosperous. After Neko II, however, there was Samtek II, who was a significantly more aggressive ruler. Inspired by legendary tales of mighty Egyptian military exploits during the New Kingdom, Samtek II sought to gain his own glory and leave a mark in military history. Kush was the first and most immediate target of Santik II's sites, and he soon set out on a campaign of destruction and pillaging. The invaders struck against Kushite monuments of culture, temples, and entire towns. The attack culminated with the sacking of Napata in 591 BCE. After Napata was sacked, the move to Meroe began around 591 BCE and was initiated by Aspelka and continued by his successor. While the most important functions of state were moved relatively quickly, the complete transformation of Meroe into the new capital was a prolonged process. That meant making it the cultural and economic heart of Kush, not just a political seat. All of these circumstances might have put an end to Kush's imperial height, but Kush was far from destroyed or irrelevant. Kush would survive for centuries to come, and it continued to rule their section of the Nile. After being forced out of Thebes, Kush became more isolated because of the arid, inhospitable, barren lands and hills that lay south of Aswan. This isolation provided a dose of security. It also helped the Kushites preserve and further hone their unique culture. Despite successfully driving out the Kushites, Egypt would not be afforded the same luck. In the coming centuries, the ancient civilization was in the sights of Greeks, Persians, and Romans, and these forces had a lasting impact on Egypt's culture. Kush, on the other hand, was free to develop its script, religious practices, and other aspects of their culture relatively undisturbed. The city of Meroe and later history. The area where Meroe emerged and prospered was already settled around 900 BCE, judging by the tomb of the so-called Lord A, which was found in the area and dated to 890 BCE. The reason why the Kushites eventually chose Meroe as the location of their new capital was most likely its richness in iron, as well as sources of wood needed to process that iron. On top of that, Meroe was located on the edge of the summer rainfall belt in the area. Iron was very important during this time, especially to the Kushites themselves. Some scholars believe that many of the defeats that Kush suffered at the hands of the Assyrians happened because the Kushites relied on bronze weapons while Assyria had long adopted ironwork into its arms industry. Meroe was also positioned in a desirable location in relation to the trade routes toward the Red Sea, which eventually led to successful trade with Romans and other countries and all sorts of commodities, 
such as gold, ivory, slaves, etc. Still, the most likely primary reason for moving the capital in the first place was security. Napata had many of its own benefits, as we discussed earlier, and it was certainly an important cultural and economic center, but the Kushites could not have the beating heart of their kingdom be located in an exposed city that was constantly vulnerable to attacks from the north. At any rate, Maroi was already an established city and a relevant administrative center before the relocation of the capital. In fact, because of its favorable location on major trading routes, Maroi flourished between 750 BCE and 350 CE, so it was very much a bustling urban center by 590 BCE. Apart from understanding these favorable circumstances, we don't know much about the early days of Maroi and the events surrounding its development and rise to prosperity. Maroi later became quite famous throughout the ancient world due to its opulence and success, so it was described and chronicled by numerous ancient historians. Fame was certainly a double-edged sword during those times, especially if the fame was due to wealth. Maroi's success would attract prospecting conquerors, such as the Persian king Cambyses. It would appear that the stories of Maroi's wealth motivated Cambyses to mount a military expedition, but his forces never made it to the city because of the unforgiving desolate desert that had to be navigated in order to get there. Maroi was also blessed with water, and there was so much of it flowing around the city that it made Maroi appear as an island, and it was called as such by some. This place was even mentioned in the book of Genesis, chapter 10, verse 6, albeit by the name of Ethiopia. Because of Maroi's prominence and importance to the Kushite civilization, the distinct culture of Kush is nowadays often referred to as Meroitic, just like their script. In fact, some scholars also refer to post-590 BCE Kush as the Meroitic Kingdom. Because of its success and relative isolation, Maroi was the place where the Kushite culture really crystallized and consolidated itself as an identity of its own. After all the influence from Egypt, elsewhere in Africa, and from the Nubians themselves, Kush had matured as a state, culture, and civilization. They worshipped Egyptian and indigenous deities alike. One of the distinctly Nubian gods was Apodemak, which was a lion god of war. The Kushites also developed an intricate mythos around the relationship between their gods and those of Egypt. One example of this is the Nubian god Mandalus, who they believed was the son of Horus. As such, the Meroitic religion was a hybrid, just like much of their art, architecture, etc. This wouldn't always remain the case, however as Kush was headed for some important cultural shifts by the time when King Archimani I, also known as Ergamenes, ascended to the throne. His rule, which lasted between 295 and 275 BCE, would be marked by efforts to make Kush even more distinct and devoid of Egyptian influence. The first thing on the chopping block was the power that Amun's priesthood had over Kushite rulers. As tradition prescribed, the priests of Amun could essentially decide on the length of a ruler's reign, depending on what the gods desired, or more precisely, what the priests said the gods desired. 
As such, the priests could declare that their god told them it was time for a monarch to step down, and this pressure would often be enough to effect a change of leadership. The succeeding king would also often be selected by the priesthood. An important factor keeping this tradition going was the belief that the health of the ruler was intimately connected to the fertility and health of the land. When the priests, as individuals who were believed to have a special relationship with the god, deemed a ruler unfit or unhealthy, it was really difficult to prove them wrong. The word of the priests was the word of God, and when it reached the king, he had to pay heed. The priests would usually prescribe not only that it was time to step down from the throne, but also to die. Indeed, many of the kings would obey that command and take their own lives when the time came. When Ergamenes seized power, however, he was having money. It appears that he was a learned man who had educated himself in philosophy rather than adhering to old local superstitions. To him, the command of the priesthood was up for debate, and as such, he was difficult to control. Not willing to take any chances, Ergamenes eventually gathered some men in arms and stormed the priest's temple, eliminating all of the priests in the process, and thus ended the priesthood over the Kushite monarchy. After that, Ergamenes continued to introduce policies that were meant to uproot Egyptian influence and assert a stronger Kushite identity. It was under his rule that Kush finally adopted the Meroitic alphabet and used it to replace Egyptian hieroglyphs. Overall, Ergamenes assimilated as many leftover aspects of Egyptian culture as he could into a uniquely Kushite identity. During this time, Meroitic Kush also introduced the title of Kandase, or Kandake, which meant something along the lines of Queen Regent. These female monarchs, or Kandases, were present in Meroitic power all the way until around 314 CE. For tradition's sake, these female rulers would appear along with male escorts, typically their husbands, for ceremonies and other official public appearances. Their power, however, was not hindered, and they were undoubtedly the rulers. The first such queen that we know of was Shanakdakiti, who came into power around 170 BCE. Records indicate that she not only ruled at Meroi, but also led her armies in war. Another, more renowned conductor of Meroi was Amanorinus, who ruled between 40 and 10 BCE. She is remembered for her leadership during the Meroitic War, where she led her armies rather gloriously against Rome, or more precisely, Roman Egypt, between 27 and 22 BCE. After initial successes, there were also setbacks, but Amanoreus eventually managed to negotiate a favorable peace treaty with guarantees from Augustus Caesar himself. Kush's entry into the Common Era was marked by a resurgence in foreign influence, particularly from Egypt to the north. Still, Meroi and its Kushite kingdom endured for quite some time, although the realm had entered a gradual decline and would suffer its most devastating setbacks in the 300s. Lower Nubia was already exposed to attacks and influence from the Blemis during the 3rd century. The most serious existential threat came from the kingdom of Aksum to the southeast. The 
forces of Oxalan were finally sent by King Arzanes and invaded around 330 CE and went to the city of Meroe. The city endured for another 20 years or so, but it struggled more and more until it finally fell under the weight of its south and of the world around 350 CE, marking a rather inglorious end of the original Kushite state. The history of the region continues after that, of course, but scholars believe that the indigenous Kushites and their culture were gradually replaced by a people known as the Nobatites, who would play an important part in the events to come. After 350 CE, Kush was in full decline, and the following era would be marked by the spread of new influences such as Christianity and the gradual extinction of the kingdom and culture that existed before. The city of Maroe was essentially abandoned by 350, not only because of the foreign incursions, but also because of the depletion of its resources. In fact, it's possible that the eventual scarcity of natural resources was the decisive factor in the decline of Maroe and the kingdom of Kush with it. The iron industry, which Maroe heavily relied upon, consumed untold quantities of wood. This was because wood was needed to create charcoal for fueling the furnaces that the industry used to process its iron. Eventually, large and important forests were diminished and massive areas ended up deforested. Furthermore, the farmers overgrazed the pastoral fields and even the soil was all but depleted due to extensive farming of crops. Overall, the city of Moroi became unsustainable and the kingdom was most likely headed toward a downturn with or without foreign invasion. After this final downturn and the invasion by the kingdom of Aksum, Kush was eventually succeeded by three smaller realms, including Nelvadia, Makorda, and Alodia. Nelvadia was located between the first and second cataracts in Lower Nubia, and it was established around 400 CE with the capital city as Farah, sometimes also called Takoras, which is its Latin name. This kingdom began in the older Kushite province of Akine, which was a developed region of Lower Nubia that some scholars now believe was already autonomous before the kingdom of Kush collapsed. The folks who established Nobatia were the Nobate people, who came to Sudan, most likely at the invitation of Rome's emperor Diocletian, in the late 3rd century CE. Although from mysterious origins, <gasps> the Nabata people are also the experts nowadays, and one theory as to their origin is the Libyan desert. Like other peoples and realms in the region, Nobatia was in many ways a successor of the Kushites. They engaged in many of the same crafts and rituals as the Meroitic culture of Kush, and as such were sort of a continuation of that Nabadia was in contact with the Blemis, who were a nomadic people of eastern Sudan. The Blemis would sometimes form anti-Roman alliances with people from Nubia, but at other times they would fight them. It was most likely Nabadia that eventually crushed these nomads and drove them out into the eastern desert. For a long time, the peoples throughout Lower Nubia were primarily worshippers of the Isis cult, centered in Philae in southern Egypt. This tradition was established firmly since the times of the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, 
and it stayed relevant for a long time after Ptolemaic Egypt was conquered and finally annexed as a province of Rome in 30 BCE. The temple in Philae was active all the way until the first half of the 6th century. After its closure, the religion declined along with it. Like much of the region, the body would eventually adopt Christianity, with the official adoption occurring in 543, although the religion was present in the region before that as well. The conversion was the will of the nobility in Nobadia, as they were most likely planning to do it for some time before making the switch official. Christianity was initially most successful in towns, probably because towns were under stronger state control, but the villages would eventually convert as well between the 7th and 9th centuries. The Coptic Orthodox Christianity that Nobadia adopted falls under the Oriental Orthodox Churches, and it still operates to this day, based in Egypt. Overall, we don't know much about Nobadia, especially before it converted to Christianity. Eventually, by the early 8th century, Nobadia was conquered by Makuria, which was its southern neighbor. That conquest was most likely a peaceful annexation, but the details of the process aren't well understood by historians. Another mystery is the fate of the kingdom's ruling elite, Makuria. Makuria was, as mentioned above, to the south of Nabadia, and as such, it was the middle of the three kingdoms. Based in its capital at Old Dongola, Tungul back then, in Sudan's present-day northern state, Makuria eventually expanded and became the most powerful realm in its region in the 7th century. This Nubian kingdom was initially located between the Third Cataract and the area south of the present-day town of Abu Hamad. It was also a rather long-lasting country as it existed for around a thousand years. Just like Nobadia, Makuria converted to Christianity in the 6th century, but the origins of this kingdom and its founding culture can perhaps be traced back to the 3rd century. Before the final collapse of Kush even happened, the area between the third cataract and the bend between the fourth and fifth cataracts might have seceded as an independent realm. The scholars who are proponents of this theory suggest that this area was inhabited by a homogeneous and fairly isolated culture that had been growing apart from the rest of Kush for some time. This culture is called the Pre-Makuria culture, and the new Makurian state was consolidated by the fifth century. The kingdom's capital at Dongola, which was located further downstream from Napata and the Fourth Cataract, was founded in these early days of the kingdom as a new seat of power. The Makurians fortified the city and undertook significant urbanization projects. The Makurians had also already established relations with the Byzantines, which kept the kingdom in the Mediterranean orbit and yielded many benefits. Of course, these relations were also one of the driving forces behind the Christianization of Makuria. Even though Makuria established itself as a regional power by the 7th century, this was also the century when trouble came knocking. Namely, Egypt had fallen to the conquering Islamic armies on their way toward conquering North Africa, signifying that Makuria might be next. Indeed, the Arabs invaded in 651, but they were met with decisive resistance, and the Makorians pushed back the invasion. Eventually, the Muslim rulers stationed in Egypt 
had to sign a tree called the Thought, ensuring peaceful coexistence for some 600 years afterwards. The warring sides didn't just establish peace, though, as they also started to trade. It would seem that the subsequent spread of Islam in the region and into Makuria was a gradual, mostly peaceful process. Over time, more and more Arab traders arrived and started doing business throughout North Africa and its adjacent southern regions, like Nubia. This led to cultural exchanges and a growing Islamic influence, which firmly established Islam even in the Makurian capital by the late Middle Ages in the 14th century. Alodi 